So this is Catherine Lambrecht. This is the April meeting for the Illinois Mycological Association. Um, if you are a lapsed member and haven't paid your dues, this is the time to take care of it because the information on forays will be going out in a week or so, and they will only go to people who are up to date with their dues. So if you have a question about your status, you can um, IllinoisMyco at M-Y-C-O, IllinoisMyco at gmail.com, ask them. Don't send the email to me because all I will do is forward it to somebody. So don't, don't ask for me. So uh, our program tonight is Andrew Methvin, who was uh, Eastern Illinois University. And I remember at least uh, Eileen Shetty, a longtime member, long time ago. Um, she and I drove down to his neck of the woods to join him for a foray. And I remember the smile on his face because he was surprised that anybody showed up from Chicago, I'm sure. Uh, but, you know, Eileen and I, we were, you know, if we got him to say yes, we had to at least show that we were there. So I'm going to turn it over to Andrew Methvin, but I want him to ask the question that I've been asking everybody now the last few months. What sparked your interest in mycology? Wow. <laughs> well, thanks. First of all, thanks for, for having me. Um, yeah, you'd mentioned that and I, it got, it got me to thinking, um, and I, and I guess where I'd start with this is that um, when I was growing up, I think I used to believe that there were um, um, a lot of, I don't know what to call them, coincidences. Um, and I don't necessarily believe in coincidences like I once did. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I have a tendency to think when I look back on life that things have happened for a reason. Um, and... Um, this story is kind of one of those sort of examples of this. So I was a, an undergraduate student. I was a, 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 I was a biochem major initially, but um, the thought of physical chemistry scared me. So I decided that maybe botany would be a better thing. And I just taken a botany class and did, did well. So, um, and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with that. My last uh, fall, it, in school, I took a class called um, California Mushrooms, taught by a professor in um, plant biology, um, who now when I look back on it, really didn't know all that much about mushrooms. But we spent a lot of time growing um, agaricus, um, the button mushrooms, in the greenhouses. And so we did that. We went out on some forays. And we even, at one point... Um, went on a foray to uh, Mendocino County. We met up with um, the classes from uh, UC Davis and UC Berkeley and from San Francisco State. They had a fall foray in Mendocino. And I remember at that foray that there was this guy named Harry Tears at San Francisco State. And I remember in the evening after we came back from, the, from being in the field, he would sit there and identify all the fungi. We went around the room and he would just go table to table and identify everything. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. That's where the story kind of ended for there. Um, I graduated, um, didn't know what I wanted to do. At one time, I actually thought I was going to become a marine biologist. I was really interested in marine algae and that didn't, didn't pan out. 
So I went to work in a plant nursery for about a year. And I started getting curious in, could somebody make a living in commercial mushroom growing? And I had some experience in that class. So I went ahead and applied for a few jobs, had a few interviews, none of which panned out. And the one that is the most pivotal was the last one, which I interviewed at a place called Far West Fungi, which was a operation that Rick Kerrigan um, worked for at the time. Um, this is in the early 1980s. And some of you may know Rick because of his work on agaricus and his monograph on the genus agaricus. And so I interviewed with Rick and Rick didn't hire me, um, which he and I have laughed about a lot um, since then. It's good when you can laugh about not getting hired for a job. Um, but we got to talking and he said, you know, and he was saying he was working on his master's degree at San Francisco State with Harry Tears. And I thought that name sounds familiar from somewhere. So Rick said, well, you should contact Harry. And just to show you how long ago that was, those are the days where you actually like wrote letters to people and put them in the mail. <laughs> so I wrote Harry a letter. And told him I was interested in mycology. And he wrote me a very nice letter back and invited me to come visit him at San Francisco State. And the next thing I knew, I was enrolled in a master's degree program. Um, and again, I don't think I really knew what I was planning on doing. My parents thought I was crazy because they said, what is he ever going to do with a degree in mycology? Um, but fortunately, I got a teaching assistantship and um, I taught general botany labs and absolutely loved it and um and so somewhere during my master's degree program i figured well you know i really like this um i don't want to teach at you know high school or middle school i'd really rather teach at the college level so i knew i had to get a phd and and then this is another one of those coincidence stories so I really wanted to go to University of Washington in Seattle. I wanted to stay on the West Coast. And I applied and I got admitted, but they didn't have any funding for me. And I also applied at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And they offered me an assistantship. And so I packed up and moved um, to Tennessee. And, and here I am. So I look back on that as a say and realize that, you know, a lot of those things happened, and I, I, I prefer to think that they happened for a reason. Um, and, you know, the reasons, the reasons were good. If we have time at the end, if you want to hear another story, I'll talk about my, my job at, at EIU. But let's talk about some fungi, because that's what you're here for. Um, so I wanted to, um, I guess I should start this off by saying that um, I've collected a lot of spring fungi over the years in the Midwest, largely because I'm not particularly good at finding morels. I can take you to places where morels are. You can find them. I can be standing with them between my feet. And I have a hard time seeing them. <laughs> so I know where to take you if you want to go. Um, and you don't have to worry about me because I'm not going to find any of them. So anyway, what I ended up doing was collecting all the other stuff that I would find that was growing in the forest instead of the morels that everybody else wanted to find. 
So that's what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about some of the some of the fungi in the spring in the Midwest that I think have a tendency to oftentimes be overlooked. Some of them are going to be common. You're going to recognize them. Others of them, hopefully, will be a little bit, a little more interesting for you. So hopefully, there'll be something for everybody. All right. Um, I'm going to break this up into two main groups. So we're going to talk about basidium isetes. So these are things like mushrooms that produce basidia and basidia spores. And then later on, we're going to talk about the ascomycota, which produce acinascospores. So those are things like cup fungi and morels and, and false morels. So we'll start with um, basidiomycota. And um, I've got these in alphabetical order because it's easier for me. <laughs> There's no, not necessarily any other rhyme or reason to it. So um, this is something that, that um, I find, would find fairly commonly uh, grown in the grass. Um, this is a grassibi, or what I call a grassibi dura. Some people refer to this as a grassibi molesta. I don't think we've really sorted out the species complex yet. Um, but, you know, the, the pale yellow pileus, you may be able to see a little bit of a partial veil around the edge of the, the cap and a little bit of a partial veil on the, uh, on the stems. Um, but then it's got a sort of a earth brown or clay brown colored spore deposit. Um, so um, not an uncommon thing. Um, and some of these things that I'll talk about don't just occur in the spring. So maybe spring and summer, sometimes spring and fall even, we'll talk about some examples of that as well. Um, this, this exhibits one of these issues that a lot of people are frustrated with in mycology and that's that the names keep changing. Um, I thought things were complicated when I started studying fungi a number of years ago, but the names change almost faster than we can keep track of them nowadays. Um, and this is one of these, one of those examples. So this is Candelomyces candolianus. So some of you might be familiar with this as Satharella candoliana, um, but it's got a new name. So Honey brown pileus. Um, again, you can see the partial veil, the remnants on the edge of the, the pileus, but it has a, a dark spore deposit, spore deposit, sort of a purplish black to black um, color, and is usually on woody debris. So it can be on stumps, and but oftentimes can be on on you know broken down wood or or chunks of wood, and things like that. But typically grow in these in these um, in these dense clusters. Um, one of the things that a lot of people find, because I see a lot of pictures of it, is um, Copernellus micaceus. So this is a yellow-brown um, Copernellus with the striate margins, and you can't see it in the picture. Maybe if you use your imagination, you can. But there are all these um, salt-like granules all over the surface of the, the pileus. And this is one of the inky caps. And so these are just coming up out of the ground. The one on the left, you can sort of see how the edge of the pileus is starting to darken a little bit. So it's beginning to deliquesce. They auto digest. Um, and so not an uncommon thing um, to find in the forest. And again, so this looks like it's on soil, but it's really on fairly well-rotted wood. Um, and the soil was just overlaying the wood and then the, the fungus is coming up on the, uh, on the wood. Um, Crepidotus crocophyllus. So most people, when they 
when they realize they have a crepidotis, they throw their hands up because they figure they're never going to be able to put a name on it. This one is relatively easy to identify if you get them when they're fairly young. So notice that the caps have sort of a peach coloration to them as the gills do and the brown scales on the cap. If they get older, the scales wash off and the color fades and then it gets really complicated. But if you get them early enough with the colors are, are still, still vivid, then, then they're relatively easy to identify. And you'll see this on several slides during the talk. So these are actually Michael Quo's pictures because when I went back and looked through mine, all of mine were horrible. So Michael was kind enough to allow me to use um, some of his images. Um, Gallerina marginata. So um, this, is a, this is a spring and a fall um, fungus. Um, I learned this as Gallerina autumnalis. And um, then the molecular data showed us that Gallerina autumnalis and Gallerina marginata are the same thing. And autumnalis, because it's autumnal, it comes up in the fall and marginated because it's in the spring. That's the way it went initially. But um, as I say, it's all the, all the same thing, but the, the brown pileus and the partial veil, um, sort of a rusty brown spore deposit. Um, and again, on wood, a lot of these things that, that I'm showing you um, are, are saprobes. So they're saprobic they're, they're litter decomposers. So they're on wood or they're on humus uh, in the forest and that's what they're decomposing. Um, that's why I think some people don't, don't go out and look for these things. For me, mycorrhizal fungi don't really seem to start till the middle of the summer when it gets hot and humid. Um, and so a lot of people aren't interested in these things because you know a lot of them you can't really eat or there's nothing special about them. And so, um, Again, that's one of the reasons I guess I'm kind of fascinated by them because I was always out looking for them. Um, Gymnopus subsulfurius. So um, many people are familiar with Gymnopus um, dryophilus and subsulfurius looks very similar to it, but the difference is really in the color of the cap. So the caps are yellow. Um, they don't develop the brown coloration that we see in, um, in Gymnopus dryophilus. And you can't really see it in this image very well, but typically those white, what look like white rhizomorphs or threads at the base of the mushrooms are actually pinkish um, in color when they're fresh. And so, you know, it's a pretty easy thing to recognize when you see it um, in the field. And I, this thing I, I commonly find just in the, in the spring. Um, <laughs> Mega Calibia rodmani. So, um, <laughs> This thing, this thing has to have an identity crisis because it's had so many names. Um, so, you know, Calibia platyphylla, Trichalomopsis platyphylla, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, but this is something that um, Ron Peterson and Karen Hughes described from North America. It turns out that, that we don't have the European species here. But again, it's on wood. Um, you see the streaks um, on the pileus that has that sort of olive brown coloration. And then if you look at the lamellae, you can see that they're, they're sinuate. They kind of curve in uh, to the stipe. So the, the attachment of the, of the lamellae is, is, um, is a pretty helpful diagnostic characteristic. Um, Mycena gallericulata. 
So, um, and this is one, and there's a debate that goes back and forth about whether people have Mycena gallericulata or whether they have Mycena inclinata. And most of the stuff that I looked at turned out to be gallericulata, the sort of pale brown colored um, cap, um, the, the mushroom on the left, um, you can see that at least to me, the lamellae have sort of a pinkish um, coloration to them. And again, it's on wood, but microscopically is what you need to really separate the species because inclinated looks a lot like this, but all these things, when I look at them under the microscope, they all come out to um, Mycena gallericulata. Um, Panis concatus. So um, this is a, this is a pleuritoid um, fungus, but notice the violet to lavender um, coloration of the pileus uh, and the lamellae and the stipe. The stipe is eccentric, which means it's off-centered. So you can see it's sort of off to one side, kind of like a pleurotus is, what we see in pleurotus. That's where the pleuritoid um, name comes in. Um, and this has gone under a number of different names, but Panis concatus is the uh, is the best uh, name for what we have uh, here in North America. Um, Pluteus pedicatus. So most people are familiar with Pluteus cervinus. Um, cervinus has a brown colored um, cap. Um, Pluteus pedicatus typically is white, and notice the brown scales or fibrils on the disc of the pileus and it's a little out of focus, but that mushroom on the left, you can see the pink coloration in the gills and you can actually see that the gills are free. They're not attached. There's a, a band of tissue at the apex of the, of the stipe. Um, and then, yeah, here's, here's Rhodotus palmatus. And, uh, and Greg and I were talking about this earlier. Um, most of the field guides say this is rare. And um, Walt Sundberg, um, who was at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, who Greg and Betty both know quite well. Um, and I got to talking about this fungus one time and we actually ended up writing a paper with Herb Monison, who was at Bradley University about Rhodotus palmatus in Illinois. And when we started looking for it, we found it all over the place. And as I was mentioning earlier, typically along stream banks and riverbeds where there were downed logs, and the logs would get inundated periodically with water. And when the water receded, then these things would begin to fruit and they fruit on the underside of the logs. So you really have to get down and look for them. They're not on the top of the log typically, but on the underside of the log. And so we ended up finding it everywhere. Um, Patrick mentioned earlier, it's not, not much of it in Chicago, but um, it's not an uncommon thing um, in, the, in the Midwest. Um, and then um, Xeromphalina tenuipes. So most of us, when we think about Xeromphalina, these small white spored um, mushrooms, um, we sometimes overlook this one. Um, and tenuipes is the, the largest, well, produces the largest mushrooms um, within the genus. Um, they're on wood, um, white spored. Some people might say this looks kind of like Flamulina volutipes. And Indeed, the stems um, are fuzzy, kind of like Flamulina volutipes, but Flamulina volutipes has a viscid pileus, and this pileus is dry. And if you had a microscope, 
they have amyloid spores, and that's not what you see in um, in Flamulina. So there are ways to separate them, but that's kind of what it reminds people of when they see it. And it's that size too. I mean, these are these are fairly large mushrooms. All right. Well, I wanted to talk about a few other things besides mushrooms. So I thought I'd throw a few polypore and a few other things in too. So life was so much easier when I was when I was a an undergraduate and a graduate student because everything was polyporous. Um, and now there's not much that's left in polyporous anymore. It keeps being moved out. Um, and so what I used to call polyporous squamosis, which is now seriaporous um, squamosis, um, with the, the yellowish pileus with those brown um, scales, and if they were turned over the large angular pores, um, this is on a standing tree. You can find these all year long. I mean, they, they're freshest in the spring, but they will last until the fall. I've seen them on the same tree in the fall when I've gone back there, and they've just kind of aged um, in place. Um, another thing that used to be a polyporous, so this used to be polyporous arcularius, but now it's lentinus arcularius. Um, and again, angular pores that are fairly large. So you can actually see the individual pore mouths on those two specimens on the right. Um, the brown scaly um, caps, and again, um, a lignicolous um, habitat. And then um, another one. <laughs> that I learned is polyporous alveolaris that's now neofabulous um, alveolaris. So instead of being brown, it's kind of an orange colored fibrils on the surface of the, of the caps. And one that's still in polyporous, maybe at least for the time being, um, polyporous umbilatus. So um, those are individual caps, each of which has its own stipe that are all united at the base into kind of a cluster, kind of like a cluster of flowers, if you want to think about it that way. Some people have tried to put this in another genus called Dendropolyporus, but it keeps going back and forth. So I don't know if we've really decided where this thing, where it belongs um, at all at this point. Um, the Basidiomycota also includes jelly fungi. So things like auricularia. So this is now what we're calling auricularia americana. I learned this as auricularia auricula. Um, and there's still problems in this group because there's a form of this that occurs on hardwood or deciduous trees, and there's a form of it that occurs on coniferous trees. Um, but it's really difficult to separate the two. So some people call them, well, that's the deciduous form or that's the coniferous form. But I think the name that we're using for this is Auricularia americana. Um, I put this in here just because I like the name more than anything else. So Ductifera pululawana. I see, I can't even say that. Um, but you know, both Auricularia and Ductifera have those gelatinous um, basidiocarps that they produce. And one of the things that I like about these about the jelly fungi in general is the fact that when it's wet and when they're rehydrated, they look like this. And when it's dry, they completely dry out and are oftentimes gone for all intents and purposes. You can't see that they're there anymore. And then it rains again and they rehydrate and they're right back to where they looked like before. And, you know, it's an amazing thing. It's an interesting strategy ecologically 
because they have the potential to produce spores repetitively. So they, they rehydrate, they produce spores, they dry out. They rehydrate, they produce more spores, they dry out. They rehydrate, they produce even more spores. Most fungi don't do that, all right? Most fungi, it's like one time and they're done, and that's the end of it. Um, and then, oh, and then here's another one. So this is Exidia glandulosa. So um, it forms these large flattened masses on, on down um, logs and, and branches. Um, so you have individual basidiomata that fuse together into these recipient masses. And if you look at them with a hand lens, um, they have what look like what are referred to as glands on the surface. They're not really glands, but they're small dots or pimples that appear on the surface of them. And that's a really good field characteristic for that one. Um, all right, now we'll now we'll shift over into something completely different. So um, we'll we'll talk about some rust fungi. So this is another thing I got really interested in in the spring when I couldn't find morels. I got interested in rust fungi and. Many of you have probably seen this. Now in central Illinois, these things are common because um, the red cedar, um, Juniperus virginiana, um, is really common on abandoned fields. And so it's one of the first woody plants that moves into abandoned fields and you find these. And then in the spring, you find those growths um, on the branches that produce these gelatinous yellow, orange, structures that are called telial horns, and those actually produce the, um, the teliospores. And this is an interesting fungus because it has an alternating life cycle. It alternates between the red cedar and malus, which is the genus for apples. So you find it on apples, but you also find it on crab apples. And so it alternates between the two hosts. It has to go back and forth between the two hosts. Um, this is, this is kind of somebody, if you're growing apples commercially, this is kind of a nightmare to have near you. So you probably go out and cut all the red cedars down for miles and miles. Although I don't know if that's really a practical solution, but that's probably what you'd have to, what you'd have to do. And I've always thought that these kind of reminded me of Christmas trees in, in April and May when these little ball-like telial masses are on the, are on the branches. Um, and again, to show you that I, I get distracted by other things in the forest, on the left, you, you see spring beauty, um, Claytonia virginica. On the right, that's the actual stem of the Claytonia and the little orange pustules you see um, are a rust. And so it's spring beauty rust, which is Puccinia marii wilsonii. Um, so when you're out looking for morels and you come across uh, spring beauties, look at the stems and the leaves of the spring beauties and you'll find the rust. It's not on every plant, but you'll find it. It's not an uncommon thing when you really start to look for it. Most of you have probably seen this one. So you're, you're thinking morels right now and you're thinking may apples. Um, because you've been told and heard that, you know, oh, when you see may apples, it's time for morels, right? So if the may apples are knee high, then the morels must be around round two. But if you look on the, on the upper surface, you see the, the whitish um, spots. But if you look at the lower surface, these orange masses that you see um, are the rust. And so the rust grows on um, 
on Mayapple. It's Puccinia podophylla. Again, this has had several names over, over time. One of the things I should mention about both the spring beauty rust and um, the Mayapple rust is they're on just this host. So if you know, if you remember spring beauties, they come up, they don't last very long and then they're gone. So what most likely happens, and the same thing's true with the Mayapple rust, um, what most likely happens is that the rust probably persists on the root systems of the spring beauties and the Mayapples. And then the following spring, when the Mayapple comes up again, the rust is already there because it was hanging out from, from the year before. Um, they don't seem to necessarily kill them. Um, but some people don't like the looks of them. Um, it's actually a really fine ecological balance because the rust is obviously getting nutrients from the plant, which is photosynthesizing, but not to the extent that it actually kills it. So it wants to keep its host alive because it can continue to feed on the host while the host's alive. I mean, it's, it's a brilliant strategy if you think about it from the, from the fungus, fungus's point of view. And then here's one on, um, on Jack in the pulpit. So Euromyces erytrifilli. And so on the right, I had taken one of the leaves and, and, and bent it over onto a bench so that you could actually see um, the rust pustules. These are not as obvious. They don't really show up on the upper surface of the leaf, but if you turn the leaves over, you can see the pustules. And again, it's not on every one of them. So, um, when you're out looking for morels, take a few minutes and look for some of these um, some of these rusts that are on the uh, that are on the spring ephemerals that we find. All right, so let's let's look then at some members of um, the Asco Mycota. So I mentioned some of those. So these are things like Morcella. So there we have Morcella esculent on the left, like Sarcosypha occidentalis in the middle, the scarlet cup. And so these differ because they produce acine ascospores. And so where the basidia mycota produce basidia with external basidia spores, ascomycota produce acide, these sac-like structures, and the ascospores are inside. And so there's a fundamental difference between the two groups when we think about the manner in which they produce um, their spores. So let's look at let's look at some examples. So um, Aluria orantia, which we refer to as the orange peel fungus. So the orange coloration is a dead giveaway for this thing. Find it on humus and on soil. I don't find, didn't find it really commonly in Illinois, but I could find it almost every spring. I just didn't see a lot of it. So it does, it does occur there. Um, this is one which I found one time in central Illinois and went back to the same spot. Oh, I don't know, about 25 years in a row and never found it again. Um, this is Dumontinia tuberosa. It used to be known as Sclerotinia tuberosa. And these little cups that are formed um, on a stalk, but if you notice at the bottom, the black thing that you see is a sclerotium. And so they produce these sclerotia underground in the fall. And then in the spring, the stipe develops. And then the soil actually came up right to the base of the cups. So when I found these, I actually had the common sense, which I don't always have, to carefully dig them up out of the ground. Something told me that there was more to it than just the cup. And so I managed to excavate the whole 
the whole thing. Um, and as I say, I found it one time and went back to exactly the same place year after year after year and never found it again. So, um, Galiella Rufa. So, um, this one you probably have all seen too. And again, if you, if you're out from Morels, you'll find it that kind of orange Brown hymenium, the black fuzzy outer surface. And then if you cut them in half, the interior is gelatinized, um, and on wood. Um, and I always thought this was a spring fungus. And I remember the first time when I was in Illinois and I found it in the fall and I thought, wait a minute, what is wrong here? And then I realized I, I stopped and thought about it for a while. And I thought, oh, all right. Well, the temperature is about in the fall, what it's like in the spring. Moisture, humidity is pretty similar. Okay. The fungus just has figured out a way to fruit twice a year as opposed to once, once a year. So you should find this one. Um, this one's caused, this one continues to create some, some issues as to what the name of it should be. Some people have called this um, Helvella acetabulum. Um, I think the better name for it is probably Helvella costifera. Um, if you read the descriptions, Helvella acetabulum should be more of a yellow-brown color, and this is really a gray, and that's what costifera has. Um, and so that's why, that's why I've used that particular name. Um, and so again, this is one where it's oftentimes buried in the soil. So you need to be careful to dig them up so you get the entire, you get the entire stipe. Um, Hymenocyphus, um, fructigenus. So these small white stipitate cups. Um, I find these common on, um, on hickory fruits, um, sometimes also on beech nuts. But for me, it's more common on hickory fruits. Um, when I first started collecting these, I thought they were only a fall fungus. and um, which makes it hard because in the fall, when the leaves are falling, when this thing is fruiting, it's really difficult to find them because they're all covered in leaves. And then I remember one spring I was out walking in the woods and I looked down and saw these things and I was like, wait a minute. And there again was this, this thing that comes up um, twice a year in the fall and in the spring. Um, microstoma um, flocosum. So here you have these red stipitate apothecia but notice the white hairs um, on the on the on the caps uh, on the cups, and and then you can see the one where it's turned toward you, and you can see the fringe on the margin of the uh, cups. I didn't find this thing commonly. It occurs in the Midwest, um, but I only found it a few times. Um, I found I found a couple others. I'll show you much more commonly than this one. I always got really excited when I when I found this because I didn't see it very often. Um, Pachyella clipiata. So, um, this you might think of as, um, a pasiza because it has kind of the appearance of a brown pasiza. It's on decorticated wood. So that's wood that's lost its bark and, um, where the wood is really wet and beginning to decompose, um, is where you'll find this thing growing. But the way in which I can typically recognize this is if you cut them in half, the interior is gelatinized and Pazaiza doesn't do that. So that's a really good field character to separate the two. And as I say, just slice them in half and you can see this gelatinous band um, inside of the, uh, the apothecia. 
Um, so yeah, this one's gone, had a lot of name changes too. So this is what I used to call Pazaiza Badio Confusa, which I, which I always really liked because I thought the name was really appropriate. There's a Pazaiza Badia, and then Dick Korf named Pazaiza Badio Confusa. I guess because it was badly confusing when he compared it to, to Badia. Um, but then um, Don Feaster decided that, no, it was probably the same thing as Pazaiza Phylogena. And now I think there's even another name for it. I think it's Phylocypha Phylogena, I think is, is now the name for this, not a Pazaiza anymore. Um, I mentioned some red ones, so Sarcocypha Dudleyi. Um, what a lot of us used to call Sarcocypha occidentalis. Um, but Dudleyi is probably the species that we're getting in most of the cases. So these, these bright red um, apothecia that, that don't have a stipe. Um, and then Sarcocypha occidentalis, which has much smaller apothecia, but they're stipitate. So you can see this looks a lot, of, lot like Microstoma flaccosum, but there's no hairs. And so um, it's pretty easy to actually separate them. Um, and then um, Urnula criterium, the devil's urn. So this is probably a species complex too. Um, it grows typically again on the, on the sides of fallen logs and branches. It produces this black mycelial mat. So if you look at the base of that uh, image, you see the black there. That's actually kind of like a black felty mat. It's all mycelium that's growing in the surface and those cups um, emerge from these. Um, I've been seeing a lot of pictures on Facebook of this from Arkansas and South Carolina. Um, so they're on their way north, I guess is what we'll, is what we'll say. Okay, well, I thought it wouldn't be fair if I didn't show you some pictures of some morels and some false morels. <laughs> but I saved until the end. Uh, <laughs> So um, there, and as and as most of you know, um, there have been a lot of name changes in Morcella, and unfortunately, and I'm partly responsible for it. There's going to be some name changes in Gyromitra too, um, because Andy Miller at the Natural History Survey and I have been working on these. Andy's been doing the sequencing, and I've been doing the microscopy and trying to figure out what we're gonna do with false morels. So um, stay tuned, I guess. So let's look at a few of these. So the first one, um, and this actually, most people put this in the Morchellaceae with Morchella, with the morels. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, that doesn't look like a morel. And it doesn't, I agree with you. It looks like a Pazizer. Um And um, it's copulate, the one on the right, you can see that it's getting wrinkled. And typically what happens as these caps expand is they get wrinkled or veined. And that's a reasonably good field character to separate it from Pazizes because Pazizes usually remain smooth, although I wouldn't bet on it. But um, the ascospores are smooth. That's a good characteristic if you've got a microscope um, to actually um, uh, see them. So. So that's Diciotus venosus and, and venosa. And uh, again, I, I would find this in the spring when I went looking for morels. Again, not finding morels, but I'm finding, I'm finding Diciotus. Um, 
So then gyromitra. So these are false morels. Um, and I should give up before I forget, I should give a plug for, um, for Alden Dirks. So Alden is a PhD student at the University of Michigan with Tim James. And Alden's looking for um, the presence of gyromitrin, which is the toxin that's produced by gyromitras. And he's looking more specifically for um, the gene that produces um, the toxin. Because as some of you may know, in gyromitra, there's all this debate about which ones are toxic and which ones are not. And if you just look at the literature, you can't figure it out. Because, you know, everybody says, oh, that I got sick off that, I got sick off that, or didn't get sick, and I've been eating those for years, or whatever it is. Um, but what Alden's doing is he's doing, he's doing sequencing um, of individual collections, um, but he's also doing um, genomic sequencing, so he's sequencing the entire genome for individual species, looking for um, a gene um, for the production of gyromitrin, trying to see if there's a way that you can correlate the compound with specific individual species, um, as opposed to what goes on right now. And as somebody who's been working with gyromitra, um, I can just tell you that um, the taxonomy is a mess. Um, so, I mean, this is what this is what I refer to as gyromitra brunia. Oh. And if, if you want, I can send Catherine Alden's um, email address because all, some of you may have seen it on Facebook. He made a request. If you find gyromitras, um, he wants you to send him the specimens and um, because he wants to sequence them. And I should warn you, he's not going to give you your specimens back. He's going to put them in the herbarium at Michigan. But so keep some if you want it. But um, but he will take more material. So there was just something on on Facebook. I'll I'll send um, I'll forward the email I have um, to Catherine, and it's got his contact information. So um, anyway, sorry, Gyromitra brunia. So I learned this is Gyromitra fastigiata. Um, it has some somewhat of a lobed or almost saddle shaped appearance to it, and sort of a gradual wrinkling to it. It's not a really pronounced wrinkling. Um, but Gyromitra fastigiata is a European species. And now we're calling that um, Gyromitra grandis. So fastigiata doesn't even occur in North America. And what we're finding is Brunia. Um, so, so you may find this one. Um, the other one you may find is um, Gyromitra caroliniana. So um, this is um, much more brain-like, so it's not really lobed, um, but it's very strongly wrinkled and contorted. Um, and these are, I don't know if you've ever found these, these are massive mushrooms. I mean, these can be, you know, 15 centimeters tall and weigh a pound or more a piece. I mean, they're huge. And I've never eaten any of these, <laughs> and I'm never going to. I remember running into a guy one time in the woods. And he had a bag with half a dozen of these in there. And, and I, we started talking. And I said, well, you realize those are potentially toxic. And he said, I've been eating these for 25 years, boy. And I never gotten sick. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm not doing it. But, um, but um, 
what I was going to say about this one is I wanted you to notice this ask a spore. This is from Michael's website. Um, and notice this little bump on the end of the spore. You can't really see it very well with a light microscope. The spores are actually roughened. They have a reticulum, a network on the surface of them that's raised. But at the ends of the spores, there are these little appendages that stick out that are referred to as an apiculus. And both Gyromitra brunia and Gyromitra caroliniana typically have one to five apiculi at each end. I know, why one to five? I have no idea, but it's the way it is. And you can actually use that to separate it from Gyromitra corfii. So look at the, the photo down here, look at the apiculus, it's much more rounded. It's kind of knob-like or, or blunt as opposed to as opposed to the more pointy one. I know you're thinking, yeah, I've got a good imagination. Um, that's a good way to separate them. Gyromitra corfii for me um, is more box-like. So it's more square um, and more close to the ground. The apothecium is ground level. The stipe is oftentimes buried in the ground. Um, and so those are the three most common um, gyrometras that we find in uh, in the Midwest. Although when you get up into Michigan, things begin to go a little bit crazy. So um, that's a whole different story for another time. Um, I mentioned Morchella and its name changes. So again, we've all had to learn new names um, in Morchella. So um, Morchella angusticeps, um, the black morel with the black ridges. Um, what a lot of us used to refer to as Morchella elata. Um, Angusticeps seems to be the name we ought to be using. Um, Morchella diminutiva, um, which have a more pointed apothecium, um, sort of this gray color, but as they get a little bit larger, they turn to yellow. So you can actually find varying stages of these all growing together where they're gray like this. And you can begin to see a little bit of yellow and tan starting to appear in these. And as they get a little older, if you let your morels sit there for a week and come back, they will have changed their color, but it's all, this, it's all the same thing. Um, in, the, in the Southeast, and I don't remember if it gets up in the Midwest, it might, there's something called Morchella um, virginiana. And it's more egg-shaped, and the apex is not pointed. Um, so it's similar in color, but it's just a slightly different shape to it. And the molecular data supports them as being separate species. Um, Morchella esculentoides. So this is what a lot of us used to call Morchella esculenta. Um, and there's another species, um, <laughs> good name, Morchella cryptica. <laughs> The cryptic species, which looks just like this. You can't tell them apart uh, morphologically. Um, DNA sequences are different, but morphology, morphologically, it's all the, it's all the same thing. And then um, Morchella punctipes, which I learned is Morchella semi-libra. I like that name much better because it, to me, it explains what the mushroom's doing. So in most morels, you should probably realize that the margin of the apothecium is actually fused to the stipe. And you'll notice in these, it's not. The stipe is actually fused about halfway up on the inside of the, of the apothecium. That's, and it's got what we refer to as a free margin. Um, and, and so that's really the best 
the best characteristic um, for it. Um, I remember that, I hope I can tell this story. <laughs> I remember the first time I found these mushrooms and the person I was collecting with said, you know what those are? And I said, yeah, it's Morcella semi-libra. And he says, no, boy, those are peckerheads. And I was like, wow. <laughs> so you hear people talking about peckerheads. I think this is what they're talking about, at least from a mycological perspective. Um, and then um, the last one I'll show you is, um, is verpa, uh, conica. So verpas are not as common. Um, I find them. I, I would find them occasionally, you know, and sometimes in weird places. I remember one spring I had a student who brought in some of these. She lived on a farm and she was walking through her dad's soybean field and found these things fruiting in the soybean field. It's like, really? Um, but, you know, in the previous one, notice how the stipes fused about halfway up in the apothecium and notice that the stems are hollow. And if you look at Verpa, it's only attached at the apex and the stipe is stuffed. It's got these white cottony fibrils inside. And the reason I mention this is that um, a lot of people eat Morcella punctipes and people eat Verpa conica, but some people get sick when they eat Verpas. And so, you know, people go out and they collect and they collect these and they find these and they just throw them all in the same bag. And then they get home and they eat them all and they wonder why they got sick. All right. So there you go. All right. And with that, um, I'd be happy to answer any questions if you have. Well, I think as you've been talking, um, Greg, Patrick, Matthew have all been answering questions. Oh, good. Um, which is great. By the way, you said you had you you were going to comment about some of the work you're doing now or were doing recently. Well, just with um, with gyromitra. So I, I guess I guess what I would say, um, as I mentioned, um, Andy Miller at the Natural History Survey and I started working on this. Oh, several. So he had a student that worked on gyromitra for a while, and we we published a paper. Then we did some work with some of the mycologists in Nova Scotia and published some things that we found on the Nova Scotian fungi, uh, Nova Scotian species of gyromitra. And then um, Andy and I have gotten interested. And again, it has, I think it came about more for, um, more because of um, what we had learned in Morcella and how when we actually started doing sequencing of Morcella, what you found out was that um, there were a lot of different species that were undescribed in North America, and there were a lot of European species that do not occur here. And so if you think about names, you know, most of our original names for fungi in North America came from Europe because the Europeans came, they brought their names with them, they found these fungi, they said, oh, look, that looks like what I find back home. That's the name we, we put on it. Of course, we, we know that that's not the case anymore. You know, we know when we start looking that we realize, no, this is not the, not the same thing. And so um, that's, that's, that's kind of where Andy and I are on. So he, he and I have been working on, I've put together um, 
a list of all the taxa that have been named in Gyromitra, but that also includes things in Decina and even a few Pazizas and some Helvellas um, that all kind of get lumped in there together. As I mentioned, I'm doing the morphology, Andy's doing the sequencing. We're trying to identify type specimens for as many of the species as we can. Um, we've got a pretty good list that, have, that he has now sequenced. We probably have a half a dozen things we're still looking for. So some of those, there are types that exist. We just haven't gotten the types to sequence them yet, or I guess I should say to see if we can sequence them. And then there are some where they go back in the European literature into the late 1700s, early 1800s, and there may not even be a specimen. So we may have to designate um, a new type specimen to try and solidify what the concept of the species is. Um, I mentioned the problem with um, Gyromitra fastigiata and how it's a European species and it doesn't occur in North America. Um, Gyromitra gigas um, could be another one of those. Um, there are things that have been called gigas uh, from, um, from Michigan and Canada, um, but they're not the same as the European gigas. Um, so, um, a new species. So yeah, I'll let the cat, I'll let the cat out of the bag. Um, there, there's a new species coming down the, the road for what we used to refer to as gigas, um, in North America. So, um, but again, that's what we're finding, um, is that, you know, a lot of these gyromitra species that were described, um, from Europe, they don't actually occur here. Um, and anyway, we have a lot, we have a lot of work to do. So I just thought I, I, I retired, I guess, from, uh, from being a professor, but I haven't retired from being a mycologist. So that continues. So uh, well, life doesn't end at 65, as I understand. Um, no, so I've heard that too. <laughs> so we have some questions coming up. So uh, this is from Mariah Rogers. Actually, she's got several, but we'll begin with the first. She goes, thank you for your talk and information. How does a mycologist approach establishing whether a rehydrating fungal fruiting body is producing more spores or isn't, or and is just left over as usual? Can it be as straightforward as trying a spore print from a sample, or should microscopy be done to see if the spores look, interact, fresh, viable, or do you, they need to be proved to propagate the fungus in some controlled setting to actually establish they are viable. <laughs> how about how about all of the above? Um, <laughs> well, um, yeah, I think a spore deposit would be one way to do it. Um, and as I mentioned, I, I don't know if I said that, but it, but with the jelly fungi, particularly if you think about it from an ecological perspective, it makes sense what they're doing. They're, produce, they're producing these rehydrated basidiomata when it's wet outside, and they're shedding their spores when it's wet. So the spores have a better opportunity to germinate and to grow. What's the point of shedding your spores if it's dry? All right. The spores are just going to lay there and they're going to desiccate, and that may be the end of it. All right. So I think the jelly fungi are onto something with this rehydration thing. I think you could get a spore deposit, um, but... The other thing you do if you have a microscope is you can actually look at the, take a piece of the tissue and you got to stain it um, with either like something like phloxene or Congo red. And 
because they're colorless. So you need some contrast and um, you can actually find basidia and you can see the spores being produced um, on the basidia. You can see various stages in development of the spores. Um, so you could do it that way um, too. So, yeah, I mean, I think there are ways to do it. Yeah. And isolating the spores would do it. But, you know, we know polypores do the same thing. Polypores, some of the polypores that, that last, you know, a long time, a few months, they seem to produce spores over a long period of time. Again, it's not just like a mushroom where it comes up, it's got to do with spores because it's going to disintegrate. Polypores last a while. They'll be around. So Mariah again says, also, is our understanding uh, that most fungi are one and done in their fruiting bodies based on that being more parsimonious claim and the fact that so many of them appear to rot away each year? Or is it a claim based on this been systematically surveyed? Well, well, um, I mean, I guess it depends on how you look at it. So. Um, you know, if you if you talk to morel hunters, they'll tell you they go back to the same place year after year. And the reason that they do is when they're picking the morels, they're not picking the mycelial mass that's underground. So it's kind of the analogy people use is picking fruit off a tree. The tree's still there after you pick the apples, right? So you pick the morels, you've left all that mycelial mass in the soil. And if the conditions are right, the environmental conditions are right then they'll produce more morels the following year. So, I mean, I don't know whether that means it's a one and done thing, maybe one and done for that year. Um, but, um, but I like to think of it as, you know, those, those fungi are producing year after year after year after year. Um, and that mycelium potentially is getting larger and larger and larger. So I, I don't think we have a good sense, at least I don't, of, um, you know, how long a mycelium lasts. You know, we hear about the humongous fungus and how old it was and all that sort of stuff. But I think for most fungi, I don't know that we have a good sense of, of how long things will, will last. Um, you know, we can culture a lot of fungi and they will last in culture on nutrient auger for a long time. You may have to transfer them periodically, but they'll continue to grow. Um, put them in the refrigerator. They're kind of like in cold storage. You bring them out and away they go. Okay. Well, Mariah, once more. <laughs> so recently I've noticed a lot of Tremedes versicolor turkey tail are perfectly fresh as they were when I saw them last year. Strong with a fresh smell too. It made me wonder if that was one of the species that is actually resporulating and that's why they would smell keeping up the production of various protective chemicals i assume that smell represents because these fruiting bodies are still making viable spores or if i was off and they were just well preserved fresh odor and all in the snow this winter i had meant to look this up but hadn't found the right way to search for the answer yet in case you or Patrick or others here may happen to know, is T versicolor known to rehydrate and send out viable spores multiple years from the same brackets? Well, I guess from, from my perspective, not that I know of, but that's just me. I mean, I know they're persistent. I mean, they last a long time. And I've seen them in the spring where they look, 
I can't tell whether it's the ones from last fall or whether it's new ones. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if Greg or Patrick has a has a better answer for that one. I always assume that they're just um, looking good and leaving over that they put up new ones for Tamides, that they're not perennial, but I guess I've never marked one and followed it from year to year to, to confirm that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Luna said, so in places like Illinois, where temperatures and humidity levels might be similar in spring and in autumn, are there a lot of mushrooms that we think are spring mushrooms and vice versa that would show up in the fall? Well, there are certainly some. I, I don't I don't have an exact number, but but I know that there are some that seem to have that twice a year sort of you know appearance to them. And again, if you think about it, you know, in the spring, like Galiella rufa, it produces cups in the spring and then they're gone. But remember, the mycelium's still in the ground, and all you need is the right conditions in the fall, um, and then they can come up again. And I don't, I don't know if that's more true of um, saprobic fungi that are on um, dead and decaying organic matter, um, as opposed to mycorrhizal fungi. Mycorrhizal fungi seem to have a narrower window of when they occur um, than saprobes do. And a lot of parasitic fungi seem to be pretty focused on one time of the year as well. So, but I've never actually counted how many of those, I guess that's, that's something I need to do. I guess I need to sit down and go back through my data and start seeing how many, how many species there are that actually sort of exhibit that kind of a phenomenon. So Patrick and I have noticed that uh, dryad saddle pheasant bank, whatever you want to call it, pheasant bank. We always thought it was a spring, and now we're seeing it spring and fall. And so it seems that its, it's time is being expanded. In fact, I kind of see it all year long now. Um, and so there seems to be some, you know, we never had good data on it, but it, um, observationally, it looks like there's getting to be more things that have the biannual fruiting than used to. Okay. So maybe maybe what we need to do is uh, see how we tie see how we can tie this into global climate change and <laughs> so so what changes have been found due to these weather fluctuations that we are having in northern Illinois the last several years? Which Andy, you may not be aware, but at least in Lake County and McHenry County, we have drought, we've had drought conditions that might be reversing at the moment, but we've had drought. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think there's a, you know, there's an ecological component of it. I mean, and, and, and I don't, I don't know that we know what this is going to do, but I, I think it certainly has the potential to change the range and the distributions. Of fungi. I mean, the, the, one of the examples that I can can think of is um, is Ammonita tirzii, um, which was described from Texas, and then um, then it was found in Arkansas, and then Walt Sundberg found it in in Southern Illinois, Central Illinois, Indiana, Ohio. You know, it's moving north, and you know, I don't, I don't know if anybody's correlated, you know, 
environmental conditions with it, but it, I mean, it, it's a little bit different because it, it appears to be a saprobe in, in grass, um, as opposed to being mycorrhizal with a tree. But nonetheless, I mean, it, there's, it seems to be moving northward. Um, and so, yeah, you wonder what's going to happen with, with some of these. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, a question I'm sure that was on top of your mind, but what the heck? What was the top fungus of 2021-2022, <laughs> if there is such a thing? Wow, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe we have to have everybody pick pick their 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 top fungus. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think what I saw here in North Carolina that I thought was um, interesting. Uh, let's see. Meanwhile, uh, Heidi, uh, you asked if there's any chance I could have a list of the mushrooms shared on this webinar. Um, I think it's like, go back and watch it and then take notes if you'd like. You know, you could make that list available to everybody, but somebody has to do it and, you know, time is everything. So if you're willing to do that, that would be lovely. Well, I already have a list. Oh, you are you willing to put it together quick? Oh, it's not at this moment, but later. Uh, it's already in a computer file. <laughs> oh, okay. You might get your oh. dream, Heidi. So, so anybody else? Do they have the you know Greg or Patrick? Do you I'll, have the, like I'll, big I'll, mushroom? I, I, like I did think I did think of one of one fungus for for twenty. What was it? 2020, 2021? So um, I found it here in, in coastal North Carolina in the lawns. Um, it's Agrosibi retigera, um, which was described, if I remember right, maybe from the Caribbean or maybe from Central America. I'm not sure. Or maybe it was South America. I think it's a Spegazzini name. And I think Singer transferred it to Agrosibi. But it, it's really cool. I showed you that... Um, that agrosibidura, it kind of looks like agrosibidura, but it has a reticulate pileus surface, kind of like redotus, um, but it's yellow. Um, so that that was probably my that was probably my favorite fungus for 2021. <laughs> Just because I'd never seen it before. <laughs> well, new is always fascinating, isn't it? Um. Any more questions? I'm going th going through the chat now. Just to Patrick, Greg, Matt, any comments you'd like to make? I saw that Matt had said he was going to answer something about climate change and his favorite fungus. I'm sure it's a lichen, but that still counts. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was I was just saying that uh, Patrick was putting some some answers in the chat. And I think Patrick had um, referred, had kind of said what you were saying about um, climate change causing some things to fruit a couple times a year, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right, Patrick? Yeah, there's, well, I keep track of the records of what we find in the Chicago area from the clubs and from our research trips, but there's been a long-term study in England by this guy, I forgot where, uh, for 30, 40 years, he's been checking this one woods um, all year long for and recording all the phenology of all the mushrooms. And he found 
Um, some things recently have switched from only coming up in the fall to coming up in the spring and the fall. And one of those is the bluet, uh, Clutaspe nuda. And we find it here in the fall. And um, one of the people at the museum found it um, in the city in the spring. So that is now a spring and fall mushroom for one example. So I would just follow up with Andy's observation about most of the things that seem to have these changing phenology in spring and fall kind of biannual fruiting are mainly sap probes, especially if you're growing on wood, right? Because then you've got a steady resource, the wood there, when it's wet enough and the temperature's right, there's nothing to prevent it from, you know, it's as long as there's enough time for it to build up more resources, they can probably go ahead and sporulate versus mycorrhizal things when we think of chanterelles and bolates and trichelomas and lacaria, lactarius. Um, those are dependent on the tree to be, you know, on the, the sugars that the tree is producing. So the tree physiologically triggers when it's shunting more carbohydrate to the fungus to trigger it to, to sporulate. So you probably won't see early spring bloom because the trees aren't producing the carbohydrates that the, that the fungus needs. So I think we're going to see the, we see shifts in sporulating time, a time when the spore carbs come up, but they're probably not going to be bimodal like that just because the trees probably aren't, um, aren't doing their thing yet. By the way, Jane said, when I look for morels, I look for forested areas with lots of hardwood trees. When I've found them, however, it's been in parks and off the side of the road. Where are the best places to find morels? <laughs> uh, wherever they grow. <laughs> that was going to be my answer, Andy. You, you, exactly. Well, I mean, I... I guess I can only speak for central Illinois, but in, in, in central Illinois, um, floodplains along the edges of the rivers and the streams um, were often good, particularly if there was ash growing there. Um, was usually a good place. Tulip poplars were good. Um, I don't know if you get tulip poplars in Chicago or not, no? Okay. I thought I thought they were kind of limited to the eastern side of Illinois, but um, that's where tulip poplars are where I would go for for black morels because um, that's where I usually found them. Um, but I had most success with ash in in um, in floodplains, but um, but I've seen them in weird places. I mean, I was out at somebody's farm one day. We were doing something else, and we were walking down a road, and there was a road cut. And the morels were coming out of the hillside in a road cut. It was like, really? I mean, so, yeah. yeah. So tulip poplars you can find in, if you just go over the edge and go in Indiana. So in yeah. uh, the dunes area, there's tulip poplars, but they don't make it around the lake into northern, northeast Illinois. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I knew they were in Indiana. I didn't know how far north they went. Uh, Mariah commented, she says, I've heard soil temperature matters for morels. And somebody else commented, I was told to look for elm trees for morels. 
Yeah, most of the I, I I've read articles about soil temperature and the correlation between when morels begin to fruit and soil temperature. Um, I've I've never really spent a lot of time doing that, um, but I have I have noticed that when I've been out hunting for morels, you know, if I'm on a north facing slope and I'm not finding morels and I switch to the south facing slope, oftentimes there are morels and it's because of obviously the temperature um, of, of the soil because of the sunlight. But, um, but I've never, I've never really done anything with keeping track. I know people do that, but I, I've never really done that. Yeah, and Hunter said she believes it's at 50 degrees where it matters. And then somebody says, I've only seen, oh, no, I think, never mind. But I think, Greg, this is the moment to bring up your infamous morale story growing in your front yard. Well, I don't want to make people cry. No. <laughs> you so should have been some crying. of you have heard this story. So when I was growing up, um, our elms, so somebody said elms, and that's true. Uh, but if you know, there's not many elms around anymore. So we had this big elm in our front yard. It died. And for a number of years, these funny, spongy things popped up from where this old elm was. And the male person asked if they could take them. I said, yeah, get rid of them. Take them, take them, take them. The year I realized they were morels, they never popped up again. So I never ate one of those morels. Isn't that a sad story? <laughs> it's amazing. And the worst part is it turns out my dad collected morels when he was a boy, but he wasn't comfortable enough to risk it. Amazing. Uh, has anyone had luck growing Clitosopy nuda? Uh, I've heard a long time ago that you can, if you find it in the woods, you can collect a bunch of the leaf litter with the mycelium and bring it back to your yard and put it in a big leaf pile like oak leaves and stuff and that might work. Um, I don't know if anybody else has tried that. Okay. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I think I've heard uh, apple and cherry both can be associated with morels. Just word of mouth learning though. Yeah, old apple orchards have been told to be good, but you got to be careful because some apple orchards, they use really nasty things, yeah. and that's in the soil, and so you just don't want to be eating all these yeah. pesticides. So yeah. you got to be careful when you're doing that. Yeah. Yeah, when I, lived in, when I lived in Tennessee, and I used to go over to the Smokies to look for morels, I always looked in the old apple orchards along the edge of the park. But I agree with Greg. I, I would be concerned about what kinds of things have been used in the apple orchards and uh, have been taken up by the, by the fungi. Yeah. Fact, Probably Patrick, wasn't the smartest thing I was doing. Yeah. And Patrick said it might be arsenic in old orchards. Yeah. I did it too, Andy, before, I, before somebody warned me. <laughs> well, I was young and I was invincible back then. So, you know, <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, and then somebody's talking about the, the seeds of the apples containing arsenic, but a lot of seeds have arsenic in them, I believe. Uh, somebody asked, what about lion's mane? Is that something we find in this region? 
Oh, we do. I don't think springtime. Yeah, I generally don't think about it as a spring fungus, although um, I found it. I found it in Savannah in January. So, but that doesn't really count. So. <laughs> Well, I think we're just about done. Um, Andrew, I'm Andy, I'm very glad you, you were able to, to drop in with us tonight. Well, it's been fun. It was fun to see you. Um, and thank you, Greg and Patrick and Matthew, for answering questions as they were flying by with, you know, 140 devices connected. There's a lot of questions that just sort of erupted. So we'll probably be doing this more in the future. And uh, if there's any, oh, so I mean, three participants raised their hand, but I don't know what it's about. Um, but I think, I think we're good, okay? Um, and this recording will be available tomorrow. And uh, thanks again, everybody. We'll see you next month. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Andy. Yep. Good to see everybody. Take care. Oh, nice to Thank see you. you as well. <laughs>